You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. All right, so we're joined on the show today by Mike Glover, who was on last week with us. And Mike is, from now on, going to be joining us, as his time permits, on podcast. And we're going to cover all kinds of different topics. And first off, thanks for coming on, Mike. Appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule with Philcraft. Oh, no, thanks for having me, Rob. One of the ones we thought today that we would kind of hit is around how many kids are reaching out to you on your Philcraft website and you're giving mentoring to them about coming into the military service and specifically around the Army, Special Forces, Rangers, Sniper, and those types of things, which of course is your background. So it totally makes sense. But you just recently had a telephone call with a kid here from Georgia that is kind of interesting and might lay the foundation for a great conversation between us about what it takes to come into the military. Yeah, I think a challenge for guys and gals coming off the street nowadays is you know, what I'm experiencing through mentoring these these young men is a lot of them come from families that aren't necessarily military families. It's not that they don't support them. They just don't have people who are in the military they can relate to or talk to or ask for advice. So they come to me and ask, you know, hey, should I go this route? Should I go this route? And some of them just want guidance. But a lot of them, we have to walk through uh, the processes of getting them enlisted and getting them an MOS taking the ASFAB, doing all the things they have to do to join the military. And recently, you know, as of really this morning and last night, I talked to a guy from Georgia who was a 27 senior guy. He's got three degrees. Wow. Educated young man that, that wants to join and be in special operations. And he wants to do that by joining Ranger Regiment and then eventually going the special forces route. So the advice I gave to him is, hey, you need to go to the recruiter and you need to tell them, that you want an option for the 11 Bravo contract and that, you know, stick to your guns. And they kind of pushed him in the direction of 18 X-ray, which is the SF off the street program, taking civilians, putting them through special operations preparation course at Fort Bragg, and then getting them through the pipeline of, you know, selection in the Q course and then eventually to a team. Well, he's a bright, he's a bright young man, got a high ASFAB and high GT score, meets all the prerequisites. Instead of listening to him and kind of guiding him down a path to get him what he wants, he's felt like they've been resistant and, they, and they're trying to push back. And the only thing he wants to do is serve in Ranger Regiment. And I talked to you offline about some of the processes that a lot of people don't know about that you have to go through as a recruiter or as a career counselor in order to make this happen. And maybe you could share some insight. Yeah, you know, that's kind of crazy to me. Although what it could have been, now that I'm listening to it, is that it, it could have been that the Ranger enlistment contract is one of those things that they don't always have a lot of positions for. When you think about it, it depends upon how many people are a typical attrition within the Ranger Bat or Ranger Regiment as to how many contracts they may offer. And I'm sure they kind of look at the the numbers that might make it through, whether it's basic training or the OSIT, the one station unit training of infantry, then on to airborne school, and then to the ranger indoctrination program, which I'm not sure, Mike, what that's called today. What is it called today? It's called RASP. RASP. Ranger okay. Assessment. So they may not make it through there. So, of course, they probably add whatever they think is their normal attrition, 10, 20 percent. Well, if that's not a high number, or at least that's something that's being considered by the Army at this opportunity, but 18 X-ray is really hot, which I would assume it would be because I've read a lot of things here recently where 18 X-ray is highly in demand because of the the types of warfare that we're getting into and special operations are going to start playing a bigger part of it. So it makes sense to me. And the reason why is, is when you take an individual that's going down to enlist in the Army, they're going down to take the ASVAB, they take the physical, and provided they meet certain requirements, they're going to be bounced against a, and this is from the past, mind you, what I remember, kind of a sheet of the needs of the Army of where the highest priority is from the Army for that week or even that day. So in other words, the Army says, we'd really love to fill these needs as much as we can. Well, the recruiters, or I should say the, the counselors that are sitting there, and all of them are former recruiters themselves, are evaluating the individual's physical and mental requirement capabilities against the, the open positions that they have that are being advertised by the Army and kind of the needs that they have there. And they're going to start with that list. Now, if an individual like the guy you're talking about says, hey, listen, you know, I mean all the prerequisites. I really want a Ranger contract. 
unless there's not something there, and even still, I've, I've seen them push overrides where they contact DA, Department of the Army, and they can get the type of override. They contact USAREC, which is the recruiting command headquarters, and say, hey, listen, we've got an individual who wants to go ranger. I've not seen that turned down a lot because at least back in the day, it was, a, it was also a, an area of demand and need. But, you know, an individual, when they go down there, if that is not available and they're not wanting x-ray, uh, 18 x-ray, well, well, then they can come back. They can come back home and they just say, listen, I'll come back whenever it is available. I know it sounds kind of crazy and it sounds like you're buying a car and you're just going to get up and walk. But you know what? That's what you end up doing. And, the, and you might end up getting the phone call made. That's one of those cheat sheets I'll probably get banged up about by recruiters today and counselors and stuff. But the truth of the matter is, unless you sign the dotted line, you're not you're not committed to anything. And typically, you're signing up for the delayed entry program. You're not going to actually fulfill the remainder of that, that contract, or at least until you ship, you're only committed into the delayed entry program, unless that's changed. So it's it's important to know that people do have the right to change their mind and may make different decisions and you may have individuals that want to depart earlier than what their initial contract was, or they decide that the MOS that they were going into is just not what they want. There are cases where they'll take them back down to the MEPS, at least they did in the past, and they would ship them out earlier, or they'd help them change their MOS so they could get the military occupational skill that they wanted uh, that might be available now. I've seen all those things occur. So I guess what I'm saying is nothing's off the table. Yeah, and I think that's good advice. The advice I give everybody across the board is, you know, going into Ranger Regiment, going into, you know, an 18 X-ray contract, going into the military period is a big life-altering decision. Absolutely. And just going in there off an emotional, you know, hey, this is all we got. I had a kid maybe three days ago. He told me he wanted to be a Ranger medic. And I said, hey, here's the route. Here's the MOS. Here's what you need to concentrate on. And then he comes out of it and he's got a 19 Delta, a Cav Scout contract. And I'm like, whoa, I was like, whoa, man, we, you know, we talked about Ranger Regiment, you're a paramedic, you, you have all this experience, and now you're going 19 Delta. And I got the sense from him that it, it was something that he was passionate about outside of the specific MOS was serving. And so I didn't really harp on it. You know, I said, hey, that's your decision. I'm glad you made a decision. If you're happy with that job and that MOS, then more power to you. And, and, I, and I hope you, you know, you have a long, successful career as a 19 Delta. So, you know, I give advice that, hey, it's a life-altering decision. At the end of the day, you have to decide for yourself, whether it's on the floor, you know, at the in-processing station with a recruiter or in your living room, you have to make the decision of what job and what specialty you want and whether or not you want to walk or you want to stay and, and take what they give you. When an individual is making these types of decisions, typically a recruiter is evaluating them based on education. Is education the dominant buying motive? Is it money that's the dominant buying motive? Is it service to country? You know, there's different factors that they start listening to from the individual and try to help them tailor what their their choices are. And they really do try to match that, whether it's trying to give them the GI Bill, trying to give them a bonus. So they try to steer them towards perhaps MOSs or skills they would be interested in that might offer a larger bonus if cash is something they're needing up front. So they pay attention to all these things, but make no mistake about it. The recruiter cannot offer at least when I, it was during my time period, and maybe things have changed, cannot offer a position. It can't be done until you receive an ASVAB test, get the results back, you go to the MEPS, you take the physical, and they evaluate the physical and the ASVAB, and it's usually the counselor at the MEPS that makes the final decision. As a recruiter, you can say, hey, Mike's interested in going into becoming a medic ranger, but what I may have heard more is that he might just be more interested to service to country. Well, then that counselor is going to pick up on that and go, okay, if service to country is what he's looking for, let me see what it is that he's really looking at. I'll show him a couple jobs that are available, and typically they have the film that they can show them of what that career field does. And it might have been he looked at all that and just goes, yeah, you know what, 19 Delta looks pretty cool. And it's all about me going to serve my country. And counselor could have said, this MOS is actually leaving next month. And if you go 18 series or you go 11X, then I can't get you out until, say, September or October. That may be a dominant decision to our buying motive as well. It really does kind of play out into what the individual wants. But when it comes down to it, if the individual is not happy with what they want, 
they can get up and leave. They don't have to sign that day. I think it's really important. It falls back onto the individual that wants to enlist to actually do their research. Because just like I would say a used car salesman, a recruiter is only going to give so much information and they're going to give the information that appeals to that individual and they're not going to give anything else. So it really does fall back on that person who is going in there. I mean, you can go to, if it's in the, in your area where there are different recruiting stations, I would go check with other recruiters too, to see if their information matches somebody else. So if you're really set on, you can do that, but the only challenge with that is honestly, is if you graduated from X high school and you haven't been out of that high school, well, in this case here, like this 27 year old guy, that was different. If you're someone 18, 19, 20 years old, and it's only been a year or two that you've graduated from a specific high school, the rules are they have to go to a specific recruiting station. After this window, then it's pretty much free game and they can do like you're talking about. Like in this case of this 27 year old, they can go to other recruiters, but that's why I point out that the recruiter is not really doing that. It's the counselor that's actually talking to them about the MOSs. The recruiter is just going to say, yeah, we can give you a GI Bill. Yeah, we can you know, do this, that, and the other. Based on your ASVAB, based on your physical, this makes sense. However, they can't actually sign the official contract, swear the individual in. Usually that has to be done at a MEPS. So shopping helps in terms of making sure that you find somebody you're comfortable with, but you're going to sever your tie with that recruiter anyway as soon as you go off to basic training. So it really doesn't matter. Just get what you want and get it with the counselor. If you are, you know, you specifically want a certain job, possibly coming with a, depending on bonuses, doing your research and actually just asking questions on, you know, is this the right time to actually be joining or will this be available at a later date? Should I wait? And depending on what's going on in the individual's life, that does change. That's a great point that actually I didn't think about that I think you guys asked me offline. But if an individual says, hey, listen, I want to go Ranger contract and it's not available right now, you know, you can go home. You can just say, listen, when it does come available, give me the call as soon as it pops up. Good guidance counselors and good recruiters will stay on top of that. Well, they'll start evaluating when those positions are going to be available and they'll give you a call and they'll send you back down there to the MEPS so that you can go ahead and finalize the whole deal and get the MOS that you want. I've seen that happen. Again, these are from past experiences, but I can't believe that much has changed. Right. And, and you know, and I think to make yourself more marketable to what you want is to study for the ASVAB to make sure that you're Absolutely. getting the qualifying scores. Because then the recruiter has more to work with, with putting you in the position that you want instead of trying to make the position of, say, something that you never thought you would be in but it's the only thing that you're qualified for. So they're trying to make it look like diamonds to you. So, because essentially the recruiter has numbers on how many individuals they have to get in. So definitely if for our listeners who are deciding to join, if you know what you want to do, you've done the research, you make sure that you have the scores, then there's no way that they shouldn't, the only thing that's working against you is, is literally the time and place on when you decide to join and if it's available to you. And there are a lot of different regulations that are actually available online out there. You can Google and you can find out what ST score, GT score, whatever different types of the ASVAB breakdown that it ends up coming out to, what the score requirements are. And there are only so many times that you can take the ASVAB within a period of time. So that's why it really behooves a person that if they're needing to go soon, that they do it right the first time, and they take practice ASVABs, they study, they do all the things you were talking about so that they get it right the first time. But if there does have to be a second time, there is a window of which you have to wait before you can take the ASVAB again. And then if you've taken it the second time, now the window even extends further before you can take it a third time. Well, and I think it's it's important to note too, and I, I'm sure Mike can really set a path for this, is if you are taking the ASVAB and you get certain GT or ST scores, make sure that even though it may be the bare minimum to be an infantryman, it might not set you up to be a sniper or to go recon or some of these other advanced schools that you need higher GT scores. So maybe you're, you're set like, oh, I got the scores that I need, but to further your career, you're going to need higher scores. So I'm not sure, Mike, if you are supposed to have um, higher scores as a sniper, if those scores are higher than an infantryman. I mean, I'm sure you might have some more knowledge on that. 
Yeah, Kat, it's it's true. If guys or girls go into MOSs that are that require lower GT scores, which you know, I correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, it's like a technical yep. aptitude, you know, a part of the ASVAB where they take the score and throw it at MOSs, and you have to have like a minimum score in specific MOS uh, specialties. Is that right? Yeah, actually, if you go out and you Google the official site of the ASVAB, there's a lot of information that's available that kind of breaks down. The GT score is what everybody in the military refers to because it is the main score that tells you which what specific category you're into. To come in, it's called the Armed Forces Qualification Test Score or QT score. Now, typically, if you're somebody that's a 3A or above, and so the categories are 1, 2, 3A, 3B, 4A, 4B, 4C, and 5, so you want to be 3A or higher. But if you start getting into where you're scoring a Category 1 or a Category 2 specifically, then you're 65 percentile or higher. But a lot of people have always said, well, I don't understand it. I made straight A's in high school. I don't understand why I wasn't a Cat 1. Well, you can't look at it that way because the categories take in components of the the ASVAB score to come up with the qualification test score, and these are percentiles. So if you score 65, you're still above the rest of the population who have taken this test. Now, you think about that's a large population statistical number. But within the ASVAB are also, I think it's uh, 10 different scores that are within there. And you can go out, like I said, and look at it. And within each of those are career-specific required scores. And it may be a it may be one of those, or it could be a combination of two. So yeah, Mike, to your point, it's going to definitely depend upon your ASVAB score and the MOS-specific requirements to go into that job. Okay, yeah. That, and so speaking to Kat's point about uh, specialty MOSs and kind of addressing their broader audience who's, who might be listening... I know you need a 105 GT score to get in Ranger Regiment, and you need a 110 GT score to get into Special Forces. So I, I don't know what the the infantry GT score is, but let's say you wanted to be a sniper, for example, in Special Forces. Well, if you come in in a regular Army MOS, you obviously can't go to the Special Forces Sniper School if you don't have an SF or Ranger uh, Regiment MOS and identifier. So guys who want to go into specialty assignments or specialty skills, like Kat said, you need to do the research because not all MOSs, like 19 Delta, for example, Cav Scout, fall into the pipeline of, let's say, uh, you know, specialty training within special operations. Some, some things that people might not know of is, for example, a Ranger. Well, a Ranger is considered part of special operations. They fall under... Uh, I believe JSOC and USASOC and, and SOCOM. And so their range snipers out of regiment can go to the same sniper school that I went to, which is called the Special Forces Sniper Course. Or when I went to it, it's called Special Operations Target Interdiction Course, or SODIC. Well, if you're an 11 Bravo in the 82nd Airborne Division and you want to go to sniper school, you go to regular Army sniper school because you belong to regular Army. You don't belong to Special Operations like ranger regiment MOSs belong to. So you have to do your research and you have to do your homework. And I think, you know, part of that was like we just talked about, the, the consultations covers a lot of that. And, you know, the positive feedback that I get from these consultations is five, hell, maybe a year ago, there wasn't a lot of guys in my position, you know, Mike Pritt's position to be out there in this social media space to be able to mentor young men and women who want to go into the military or who want to go into special operations. Um, when I went in, probably just like you guys, Kat and uh, Rob, when you guys went in, I mean, our best resource for information was word of mouth, was the people that we knew in our communities yeah. and our schools and the movies that we saw. You know, Hollywood was part, probably part of some of the influences that we had. So uh, it's, it's, it's a great thing in a lot of ways you know, some ways there's a lot of bad things that come from it, but in a lot of ways there's a, a, a plethora of resources, like including this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with both of you guys when you're talking about doing the research because just going out on the, the GoArmy.com page is an example. There's all kinds of stuff that you can find out about specific skills, what the requirements are. And when we're talking about taking a physical test, I mean, we're talking about the actual medical physical side of it where they're going to be checking you for 
physical capabilities and demands on your body type thing, but they're not testing you, say, from your physical demands of can you do so many push-ups, sit-ups, run two miles, all those types of things, which are going to be a requirement not just for basic training in order to pass that, but if you're talking about going to a specialized field like, Mike, you mentioned rangers or special forces, you better have prepared your body to the extent of being able to handle the the more strenuous requirements that's going to go way beyond what you're going to do in basic training. And so it really behooves you to go out and do all the, the kind of due diligence ahead of time on what it takes as far as the test, what it takes to meet the physical requirements, meaning you can't be, let's say, for an example, red-green colorblind and maybe to go into infantry, you can't be this, you can't do that. And then beyond that, what are the physical requirements that I need to do to get myself ready so that I can pass basic training, advanced training, or one-station unit training for combat arms? And then beyond that, airborne school, RASP, or 18 X-ray Special Forces selection training, and then on to the SFAS. So there's, there's so much that you have to actually prepare yourself for, and doing the research is step one, then doing all of the work that sets it up so that you're successful is step two, and then going down and seeing that you've actually accomplished and done that from the ASVAB and the physical, meet with the career counselor and, and see what you can't get. And if you don't find what you want that day, well, then go back. Come back home. Go back up there another day. You've just got to take time off of work, out of school, or away from your personal life in order to go back up to the MEP station. And the recruiter has to set that thing up. Outside of that, it's not a difficult thing to do. So I think in the case of the individual that you talked about that's 27 years old specifically, that individual, if he goes down to the MEPS, he gets past the recruiter, he actually goes to the MEPS and talks to a career counselor, and that option is not available, then just ask him to come back home. Just say, hey, listen, when you do go down there and it's not available, just come back home and turn around and go back whenever you can find the, the time, then do it all over again. See if it's not offered then. Or... Have them contact you when they know that the option is available, the ranger option is available. Yeah, that was the advice that I offered to him was, hey, you know, if this is something that you really want, you have to have some tactical patience. And you can go in as 11 X-ray and go in as 11 Bravo, but if the option 40 is what your heart's set on, just hold and squat and just and just wait until it's come, it becomes available and let them know that. Be clear and concise with your communication with them. Tell them exactly what it is you want and then then walk away. Again, I don't think it's at the fault of the counselor or the recruiter. It just could be at this point the needs of the Army is not fill certain positions within Ranger Regiment. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with Ranger Regiment notifying Department of the Army that we need to fill X number of positions based on current attrition rates for this year. Once they fill those up, then then that's it. You are going to have to kind of wait for the next cycle, and, and there's not a lot of rangers in the first place. I think he had, you know, his heart set on it. He's just disappointed. I'm still a sergeant major in the inactive reserve, and you know, I'm still on the hook. But you know, I, I gave those guys a, call, a courtesy call just to find out what the deal was, and to come to find out that MOS hasn't been available in regiment, or they haven't seen it come across their desk in a few months. And I don't know if he was blowing smoke, but it might be the case. And I told them it, it's realistic that that was the case, based on the fact that. You know, those guys are very good at keeping their numbers and their strength of their unit up because of the operational requirement that they have. God, you think about the the medic and the ranger. I mean, when you put those two together, those guys go through now an extensive course, year long, I think it is, worth of training that they end up going through. And I would venture to say that many of them probably end up staying. They're probably offering them nice reenlistment bonuses in order to be retained. So for those reasons, it makes sense that the slots, there's not going to be very many of them. And then you think about the, the slots that actually would come through attrition would be probably far and few in between. Yeah. I, you bring up a really good point about retention. Retention is another podcast in itself. I got some beef with special operations retention, but you're right. I think I think that could be it. And you know, regiments really smart, and they come a long way in the last ten years since the start of the the global war on terror. Uh, they've evolved as an organization. You know, their command has evolved, and and there's no doubt that they're especially their medics and their their fighting forces a top tiered operational unit. 
So, Mike, I mean, you went into Special Forces, and we talked a moment ago about 18 X-Ray and the fact that individuals can come off the street and apply for a SF position. There are processes that they both have to go through, and at one point they're actually going to meet. The 18 X-Ray is first going to go on and go to infantry training, then airborne school, and then following that, if they pass the airborne school, they're going to go through a special forces preparation course, which is just for the 18 x-rays. And then those that are coming from BAD and other places within the conventional army are going to meet up at the special forces assessment and selection. So tell us a little bit about once you meet up and you're, you're starting the whole special forces assessment selection, what can an individual expect from that point forward? Yeah, you're right. You know, all these MOSs, all these jobs, whether you're 18 x-ray or you're an MOS off the out of the regular army, you know, or special operations from Ranger Regiment, you all show up and, and you're all given the same opportunity to do three weeks at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and to be assessed physically and mentally. You're not looked at for your specific traits at it, that are pointed. You're looking at really at your specific ability to prepare prior to coming come to selection, which is a whole other mantra. So I tell guys and, and, and now girls that want to go to Special Forces Selection that they have to remember that when they show up, it's not necessarily that 12-miler or that 18-miler that are being specifically judged on in time as a standard. It's really a highlight of your professionalism and your ability to train and prepare prior to coming. So if, you're, if you haven't taken that time to prep and, sh and you show up and you don't perform, or you do perform, but you can't maintain the longevity of the longer walk through the duration, then you haven't done all the preparation work prior. So you can get there, for example, a 12-miler. You can get there and you can run a 12-miler in two hours. And that's all fine and dandy. And you could suck it up and like get to that point and be like, yeah, I, did, I gave it my all. But you have to remember, there's probably going to be two and a half more weeks after that. So nothing is specific. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And when you get there... You have to realize that you're being judged on your source of independence and your own abilities and no one else's. There are some culminations where you'll be tested and evaluated, looked at as a teammate or as a team member, maybe even in a position of authority as, as a team leader. Um, but for the most part, it's an individual um, evaluation of your of your current capabilities totally different than say ranger school where you're actually going through a team effort and it's about peer reviews and it's a little bit different isn't it because i mean special forces it's more about the individual their intelligence agility resourcefulness all that kind of stuff yeah the, the scale is very broad in special forces as as far as what you want in a candidate and it's not all about just sucking it up and driving on i mean that's that's an element to it but like you said the the broader element is being able to think outside the box, being able to be a creative thinker, using you know cognitive and analytical skill sets, um, and applying them through these evaluations and these tests. It's not like Rainer School where you're just going to suffer, and really you're being judged on your leadership in a combat-like environment where you're deprived of food and sleep, and you have to work as a member of a team. You have to be in charge when you're designated to be in charge. So it's, it's very different, and, and it's, uh, a, a lot of people have a hard time dealing with not being yelled at or not being talked to or not being communicated to. And when somebody comes in, they write something on a board, and they have to follow those instructions, it says a lot about the individual and their ability to adapt and focus on the task at hand and not be task-saturated with everything that's going on around them. When I was at Benning, I thought it was – you know, one of these things I learned right quickly is that those guys that were coming from regiment that were headed off and going to SFAS, when they'd return sometimes, and not everybody makes it through SFAS, mind you, the first time, many people have to return. But when they when they return, I always thought, wow, that's always odd because they're some of the most physically fit individuals. And when you think of SFAS, that's always what you kind of thought about was the physical side of it. But what you're talking about, there's a whole nother mental element that goes along with it. And the fact that you're working as an individual as opposed to a team. So you have to be able to get your mindset in that way. And I think maybe individuals might show up and think they have an idea of what it's like from a physical component of it. But then all of a sudden you start seeing the mental aspect of it. You might have not prepared that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy because part of my 
you know, just looking at and, and analyzing guys who have gone through special forces selection and now mentoring people, I, I look at all the guys that have been through SFAS and I'm trying to peg down, you know, the, the optimal candidate. And a lot of it has to do with really their, their prior experience in life or prior to coming to SFAS. And yes, there are a lot of things that you could specifically do to prepare for SFAS. And there are things that you could do to train yourself to be better. But being self-reliant is one of the, the key characteristics of being a good SF guy. And what I mean by that is when I went through special forces selection, along with all the, the guys that I went through with that were successful, we all had like a common thread. And that thread was we didn't really piggyback and depend on anybody else. We, we kind of figured things out on our own. And like Kat said before, we kind of did our own homework. That's not knocking anybody who's leaning out or leaning forward, looking for uh, advice. That's exactly what I mean by it. I mean, you, you just don't sit on your ass and you, you hope for the best. You have to get out, out, you have to read books, you have to talk to people, formulate a plan based on that information, and then backwards plan off the end state, which is being, in this case, a, a special forces soldier. So that, that says a lot about a you know, an, an individual, and SFAS does a good job, a great job, of assessing and weeding out those that don't belong in the ranks uh, on the teams. That's why it'd be really cool if Mike Pritz was on here, having been there as an instructor and leading those guys through it for sure. But I mean, SFAS is only 19 days long. And so you think about, oh, wow, only 19 days. But those those are some pretty brutal 19 days through the pace of what they're trying to put you guys through to determine who's going to go on to Q course, which is the next phase. Yeah, th that 19 days is crushing for, for a lot of reasons outside of even physical uh, crushing. I mean, I, I tell guys, hey, when you go into to SFAS, expect to be broken down physically. What, what you need to do is get your, your mindset prepared for that. And, you know, guys talk about it. Gorilla Athlete on, online talks about it, embracing the suck. Like you have to embrace that and welcome it because you're going to get to that point. Once you get to that point and you accept it, now you can move on mentally by figuring out what you have to do to keep pushing forward and be being successful. And then, you know, it, it's funny because after SFAS, which is a huge accomplishment, you have this euphoric feeling like, hey, I made it into the ranks. Right. But that's only the beginning. I mean, that's like going to zero week, week in Rainer school where you get your butt smoked and then you realize you haven't even started day one and you've already gone through a week of pain. Well, it's the same thing. You haven't even began yet. You went to orientation for college, now you got to go through four years of education. Yeah, in this case here, now you're talking about a Q course, which is five more phases. And at that point, if you actually pass that and then Robin Sage at the very end, then you're able to call yourself Special Forces or as civilians refer to it, Green Brave, based on their headgear. But it, there's a lot that goes into each one of these phases as well. Yeah, each phase, you know, I don't know how they broke it down, uh, how they break it down now. It seems to change every once in a while. But it's a it's a very complex pipeline for every MOS. You know, eight, whether you're an 18 Bravo, weapons engineer, medic, or com communications, it's broken down specifically to make you a subject matter expert in your particular field. And each each phase is a gate. I mean, Sear C. I mean, Sear C for me, survival, escape, resist, evade. C, which is the high risk version of it, the wartime version of it. Uh, was the last thing we did. And that was after two years of training. And there were guys that, that quit, guys that we lost, guys that, you know, went back to the regular army after they tapped out of CRC. So nothing's guaranteed throughout this whole process. It's a lot of pressure, but it's some of the most accomplished training uh, that I've ever received. You know, Robin Sage, which is in books, I won't go into much, too much detail about it. Robin Sage is the exercise where you, you basically culminate and you put all everything together for me, going through Robin Sage and then three weeks later, uh, four weeks later, going to Afghanistan, it was the most realistic training that potentially gave me the most critical skills I need needed to apply to the battlefield that I've ever been through in my military career. So it's it's something to really look forward to. By the time you get to that point, though, I mean, you've already gone through an orientation of Q. You've gone through individual skills, MOS qualification, as you mentioned, whether it's going to be weapons, engineer, medical communications. 
Then you're going to go through collective training where you put some of these things into unconventional warfare practical exercises, then language training, then the Sears course that you talked about. So, I mean, it's quite extensive of what you're, you're going through. And at any point of that, you could get washed out. Yeah, absolutely. At any point, nothing's, nothing's guaranteed. We lost guys the entire way through and the attrition's pretty high. I mean, that's, you know, we keep saying again and again, it's, it's, it's a marathon and not a sprint. It's, it's exactly that. It's, you have to be able to sustain and stay consistent and, and maintain a, a level head to continue to be educated through that whole process. Um, when I came out, you know, I'm, I'm half Korean. I was a half Korean French speaking deploying to the Middle East guy <laughs> when I came out of the course. So it was this huge, huge uh, irony that, that I came out of that and, and deployed and, and had the language and all the skill sets that I had coming out of it. Yeah, that's crazy. I think what you said that's most important and key to take away was the fact that three to four weeks after earning your special forces tab and your Green Beret, you are off into a real life situation. So that actually behooves you to, if you back and rewind up to everything that we were talking about in the very beginning, that preparation component and then paying attention to what you're doing through the training is so critical and key because you will be applying these to real life situations and they're going to have a lot of people that are going to be dependent upon that in real life situations. More so now than ever. And I, and I embed this and I always close with this when I'm talking or mentoring uh, guys or girls about going in the military. You know, when I came in the military, we were at the height of the war. When I came into special forces, I, we were at the height of the war, whether it's Trump or Clinton, when the new election happens and a new administration gets their feet on the ground, they always kick off some kind of change in strategy because they want to show that they're different. I think within the next year to two years, it's going to be just like 06, 07, 08, where the prime of the war, where guys and girls are going through training right now are, are guaranteed to have boots on the ground in combat. So every single thing that you're doing right now in training or, or that you're looking forward to doing in training, it's imperative that you you pay attention to every single facet of that and every single detail of that because you're not just training to train. It wasn't like me and you, you know, when we went, I went in the army in the nineties, there was no war going on. Right. And we, th those years were brutal because, you know, I was in the infantry, I was training, doing all these things and then didn't get to execute any of them. Well, it's not like that anymore. Every single thing you do, even in basic training, when you're out there standing with a rifle with a bayonet on it, it means something. So it's very important that, Every single day, you take advantage of it, and you try to absorb as much knowledge and information from those instructors as possible. When was it that you went to sniper school? I mean, how long was it from the time that you actually went to a unit before you went back to school and picked up sniper? So when I came in, I, you know, I went to 3rd third, third Special Forces Group right out of the Q course, and I deployed right after I processed and went downrange with my team to Afghanistan for nine months. When I came back really going into that as a cherry and coming back out of it really as a cherry, you know, you know, I had some combat experience as an 18 Bravo. I uh, learned a lot from my detachment. I wanted to serve in, you know, to our next door unit, which was the SIF, the commanders and extremist force. I didn't have enough time on a team to even go there. It took a lot of begging and, and asking for permission from my sergeant major and from the next door sergeant major where I, you know, I went to Sephardic, which is the uh, advanced uh, CQB school for SF and went straight into the SIF um, after uh, that combat deployment. And then it was a sharp, a sharp and steep learning curve where I knew I wanted to be a sniper in my entire military career. And I just kind of got an opportunity with working with the snipes uh, down range for the, my second rotation to Iraq and they slotted me for a position. So, you know, two to three years after being on team, I got the opportunity to go to sniper school. When I went to sniper school, me and my partner from the SIF, uh, we, we shot top shot as partners against some of the best guys uh, across the military. And it was some of the best training I had ever received in my life. Uh, a, a huge opportunity for me, but not, not really the norm. I mean, most guys that I know, some guys go a decade in special forces begging for sniper school and it doesn't happen. Some guys like me just get lucky and get a slot and, and get the opportunity to shoot into the course 
and then and, and get to be there. So, you know, I, I was just one of the lucky ones. How did, how did those guys then come from Ranger Bat? How do they get into sniper school? I mean, cause there's certain slots there as well. Yeah. So every, you know, for guys that are interested in Ranger Regiment, you know, Ranger Regiment has, now they have sniper sections within their platoons that support uh, the main body of, of that organization. So these, these guys have to be sort of qualified and they try to push them to uh, sniper school to get slots. So there's always slots for Ranger snipers and you, you know, you don't see a lot of them uh, when during my class, there was maybe two to four Rangers out of a 30 man class. But like you said before, it, our war is changing. It's changing and evolving warfare and the way these units operate. And they're looking at sniper operations as a, as, as a critical mission, essential task um, to the broader picture of special operations to, to support and also identify and, and report information and intelligence. So it's a, it's a huge opportunity and, and every special operations unit within SOF is getting a piece of that. So there's a big difference here, though. And Kent's husband, she's mentioned several times, is a ranger still today. I mean, but there's a big difference between ranger mission and special forces. And maybe this would be a good time to kind of talk about those two differences because I think people are confused about what's out in movies or how they're portrayed and the stereotypes that are available out there. There is a big difference between these. There's a huge difference, and I try to say this with a with a fine tooth comb because I, I never like to uh, give anybody the impression that one unit's better than the other because I have a lot of respect for regiment, just like I have a lot of respect for USAFIC for Special Forces Command, but they're two completely different missions for, for different reasons. You know, Ranger Regiment is a light infantry force that specializes in direct action and special reconnaissance. They have a pointed mission and that's a very dangerous, deliberate mission set. When I saw kind of the evolution of Ranger Regiment at the height of the war, some of the missions they did changed, like movement to contact. And they had the Marauders or they had the Darby Rangers that were moving uh, across large villages and doing really kind of a big army mission where they were living out of rucks and they weren't doing specific pointed targeting of bad guys. So it kind of opened their eyes in Afghanistan to a, a broader mission set. I think with their mission and their capability, they're capable of doing anything in the realm of direct, direct action and special reconnaissance. When you, when you look at special forces teams specifically, they have a, a myriad of mission sets, which include direct action, special reconnaissance, counterproliferation, foreign internal defense, and, and even counter narcotics. When you, when you look at those mission sets, the way their tasks organize is in detachments. And these detachments are meant to operate and isolate on their own as individual teams and even uh, I operate in individual split teams. So you take a 12 man team, break it down into two A and B team, and then not only conduct special reconnaissance and direct action, but be force multipliers on the ground by training indigenous personnel to conduct direct action, special reconnaissance, but also to be able to plan, organize and operate strategically. So they might get a mission where they come down, they plan the mission from scratch, develop all the courses of action, and then execute, you know, the whole find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze. They do all that. It's a revolving process that they do on the battlefield. Now, Ranger Regiment's broken down into platoons, into companies, and they do have a regimental uh, reconnaissance organization that does re special reconnaissance for the battalion. But they, they mobilize in different uh, facets. Now, they both do... I would say that they both do unconventional and irregular warfare in times when it's needed. Uh, those operations are a little bit more black than they are generalized, um, so we won't talk specifically about them. But both organizations, for different reasons, do great things. I'm more interested, and I think uh, guys have said this before me, I'm, I'm more interested in after kicking doors, after doing really what's the cool guy mission, it's a broader and more satisfying and gratifying process to, to take an indigenous element that's fighting for their country, teach them the skill sets that, that are important for them to counter the terrorists that are in their country, and then see them do it as you leave and rip out. One of the biggest successes, I think, for special operations, especially for the SIFs specifically, is the Iraqi counterterrorism force in Iraq. 
the entire reason ISIS is being crushed right now in the small pockets of resistance that they have in Mosul that they had in Tikrit is because of the special operators that were left behind that special forces trained. And you're seeing the same thing exists with Range Regiment and different organizations that they trained. So it's a it's a it's completely different skill sets. I didn't mean to go down a <laughs> down a tangent, but it, it's both of them equally as important. No, it's really cool to see the the differences between the two. I, back in the day, I remember more of Rangers being as they were from Ranger School. I think they've adapted a lot over the last sixteen years, and it's probably very different from Ranger School to real life now. Well, I know it is. It, there's a lot of a lot of things that are taught in ranger school that are great and the whole bit and the different phases. But the truth of the matter is, from what I hear, at least, you're going to le- learn a whole new skill set outside of ranger school when you are deployed with a ranger unit because they've adapted much differently today. Yeah, I think, you know, I've kind of like in social media circles kind of suppressed some of the hype about ranger school, especially when you know, Captain related to this, two women graduated ranger school and there was an uproar, like people were all butthurt about it. And my whole take on it is, hey, man, this is a combat leadership course. Yes. Well, if you have a female who's in charge of the combat engineer unit and and she's leading troops in the combat, well, guess what? You probably want her trained in combat leadership. Well, every single human being in combat arms should have the opportunity to go to ranger school because it's a school to assess your ability to operate in combat stress-like environments. So that's completely different than operating actual in actual combat under certain uh, stressors. So, yes, yeah, the difference between the school and combat are completely different. I, I think there's a lot of good takeaways. You know, when I went to Ranger School, I was 18 years old. It was an awesome learning experience and set a great foundation for me as a combat leader because I understood more so what people did when they were hungry and they were tired, and then how to manage that properly. You know, people are trying to say, hey, I just want to go in the Army because I want to go to Ranger School. Well, it's just a school. Go to the military because you expect to be in combat. That's the true understanding and true reflection of what you're going to be as a combat leader, not not a school. The feedback that those those women came back with after completing Ranger School was they were excited to take back what they learned from this, you know, elite well, pretty much NCOES, and take it back to their units so they understood their, their soldiers better. And like you just said, it's, it's a completely different arena when you are going through the suck for 60 days and then as far as being in combat. Yeah, that's, I think that's a big misconception nowadays and people really don't understand. I think they're more hyped up about the tradition and that changing. But like you said, like any, any person, any soldier that is going into combat you would want to have that experience because you know you can trust them on the battlefield. I thought what you said is powerful and probably sums up this whole podcast well, which is when you're going into the military, consider that you're going to be doing that job in a combat situation. I mean, that that's really it. Pick the MOS, pick the skill, pick the job, because that's what you want to do in combat. That says it. Yeah, I think every service, you know, every branch has a, a misconception about what we do at the end of the day. Uh, there's a small percentage of both or of all services that actually go to combat and are in harm's way. If you're one of those um, men or women that want to serve in that capacity within the military, it's not about a school. It's not about a, a tab. What it is about is the experience that you no doubt are going to face, and that's the realism in it. You're going to go to combat. If you join the military within the extended period of time from now until probably the next eight years, you're going to be in combat. Um, hopefully it's against ISIS. Hopefully it's uh, against crushing those guys. But it's guaranteed. So if you have the right mentality, if you understand the totality of that scenario, then you won't be so focused on the allure. Uh, and I won't lie, you know, when I was just like you, you guys, when I was walking in the shop at you know, seeing a Green Beret walk by. I remember specifically, I remember being in the IHOP in, in Fayetteville as a Joe, and a guy had an SF tab and a Ranger tab and a CIB early on in the war. I'm like, that dude's been to war, and that's incredible. And, and there's right. no doubt that when I got that, that tower on my left shoulder, that I would be proud of it. But that's not the ultimate end state. The ultimate end state and the reality of it is you're going to be on the battlefield fighting in combat. And you should look forward to the opportunity and preparing 
and doing everything you can to get prepared for that. One of the first NCOs that I met that actually influenced me or had a big influence on me as a mentor was a gentleman that did have special forces, was a sniper, and did it in Vietnam. And, of course, I had already had a big you know, respect for those guys that uh, had gone to Vietnam. But having that individual mentor and train me, the way I kind of came away from it was I wanted to receive as much training or serve with as many units as I could that actually are going to better me for that combat situation so that when I do hit that situation, I am prepared. And I'm with the best, by the way. You know, that's why I wanted to do it as well is I wanted to serve alongside the best And maybe that's the reason why they're coming in the door and they're looking at it and they're seeing these guys that, you know, you hear all kinds of ways through social media, through Rangers, Special Forces, SEALs, whatever it is. And I know we talk a lot here on this podcast about special, whether it's Special Forces, Special Operations and such. But if if that's what's enticing you and drawing you, you better find out a lot about what those what that really requires and and what that means it's going to place you into in a combat situation and if that's really what you're thinking or about when you go to do it it's not about when you're back in the rear and in your garrison unit wearing your beret and the whole bit those times are are going to be pretty few as well if you're going to be in one of these combat roles Somebody's- most of the time they, the guys that actually do it don't even want to be wearing that stuff anyways you know what i mean because it's just so that's just the type of people that they literally are changed into once they've been in that role. Yeah, Mike, you were so. the guys that wore your hands in your pockets and stuff all the time, right? <laughs> I tell people, I, like, if you want the braid at school, but the only time you're going to wear it is when you don it. After that, it's going to go in your back pocket, and you'll never, you'll never see it again. Hopefully, with Mike Pritz, with former Command Sergeant Major Mike Pritz, he gave my team specifically relaxed screaming standards, so all my guys had beards. We wore civilian clothes, and we never wore a uniform, and that was, that was a lot cooler. They're the most unconventional of the forces that's probably out there. Much, much different than what you picture. But I, I think your point's very valid too, Kat, that a lot of people end up going in for the hype or what they believe to be the hype of being that individual. They're going in for the, all the wrong reasons, if that's the case. So do, do the homework. Make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into. It's not about writing a book or making a movie after. And Mike, you have something that's going to be coming up with Philcraft very soon. Yeah, next week on the 5th of August, we have a, a free seminar. It's going to run uh, in Modesto, uh, California. It's going to run from uh, 1300 for 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Just a couple hours seminar. You know, I try to do, you know, I, I have an active shooter course the following day in the same exact location. But I, I wanted to kind of bring in some of the communities. I know San Bernardino to the south and some of these places that have been affected by active shooter scenarios. Um, there's a lot of people who have questions and I'm, I'm frequently asked and answering questions on online. So I wanted to give people kind of an open forum to ask questions and talk specifics about self-defense, home defense, active shooter, and, and bring in some of the community. We have, we have a good following so far of people who have signed up. You can go on uh, philcraftsurvival.com. Um, right now on Instagram, I have a link up for, for the sign up. You just sign up. Just tell me how many slots you have so I know how many people are coming and and that's completely free and open to the public. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.